0: chapter 6 and 7 today and I'm going to do an abbreviated reading which is going to take around five minutes as we uh, give you the flow of the story of Acts chapter 6 and 7. So if you have your Bibles there, we're going to start in Acts chapter 6 and uh, move through this passage. A reading from the English Standard Version for those of you using an electronic uh, Bible. That's chapter 6 verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard and speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Verse 6. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for a hundred years. Verse 15. And Jacob went down into Egypt. And he died, he and our fathers. Verse 17. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Verse 20. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Verse 29. Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Verse 34. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. I have sure uh, this Moses, uh, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Verse 44. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David... He found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place to, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people. And the witnesses laid down the garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, or he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him.
1: Thanks, Nath. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before your throne. One sitting at the right hand of the Father, we bow at your feet this morning, both in our hearts and our heads, and we ask through your Spirit that you would speak to all of us but also as a community and what you're saying to us as a church. Lord, once again, I pray and ask that let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight through your Son, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting Canterbury Gardens, welcome again, and it's great to have you here with us. We're traveling through Acts, and we've sort of paused here and there to different um, things that have been happening in our church calendar. What we're seeing this morning is we're coming up to a certain point in the story of Acts where it's going to take a significant change. But it's nothing that we should be caught by surprise about because this is what Jesus talked about. In Acts 1, he actually said that, listen, when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit as we are celebrating Pentecost today, he will come, he will empower you, and then I'm going to send you out, that you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is what's going on. The gospel is starting to grow. The gospel is starting to spread. People are coming and turning to Jesus. But just as the gospel is growing, so is the opposition. So are those who, against the gospel, are standing to become quite prominent in the story of Acts. So previously in Acts... Jesus has commissioned his disciples, they're going out, they're proclaiming the truth, the church is growing, uh, there's no longer this barrier of you know different uh, groups and sects and so on, they are different, they're all one, they're hearing the gospel, they're responding to it, the Holy Spirit is coming powerfully, it's it's working through the apostles, they, the Holy Spirit is empowering them and their signs and wonders are being shown to, to prove that this is God's work and not only that, the first church community at that time are so deeply the community are uh, committed to the gospel they're also committed to each other they're no longer looking after their own interests they're looking to the interests of each other but there is some issues that are about to happen and Nathan read that for us but just before this section what's happened is that the apostles once again have been arrested They've been uh, told, listen, you need to stop talking about the gospel. You need to talk, stop talking about this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, this Messiah that you're proclaiming. That is not a good thing to do. We're going to command you to stop talking. And you read this in the previous chapter. But there's this is really key thing in Acts 5. But one of the leaders themselves, a Pharisee, turns around and says this thing. He says, listen, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might actually be found opposing God. So they took their advice and their response is to beat the apostles up. But friends, what's going on here is a response. And that response is this guy saying, hey, check your, your reasonings is what you're doing. Because we'll find out sooner or later if this is of God or not. Because if it is of God, you can't stop it. You just cannot stop it. And that is shown again particularly even in Stephen's speech. We'll get there in a sec. So the apostles cry for boldness and God gives them the boldness to proclaim the truth. So the Christian community continues to grow. It's expanding. And as much as there's issues externally with opposition, there's some internal issues that are starting to pop up now. What's going on here at the start is that the apostles who have been doing everything, they've been preaching, teaching, serving, doing a lot of things in the church at that time, there's is an issue that rises. So there was no like, social system like um, you know, Centrelink and things like that in that time. So the widows were, in many ways, they didn't have any income if there was no family going to look after them. So their extended family, the church became their family. And so they would have to meet their needs. And there was an issue that rose up. And there was no, nothing like a new issue. There was constantly, you see them in the New Testament. But particularly, guys and uh, people who speak in, who are Greek speaking Jews and there are Hebrew speaking Jews. And, and what happens is an issue comes up where the Greek speaking Jew widows are not getting any of the, um, the, the need and the money and the food and so on. So the apostles call an emergency AGM. And they recruit all uh, these people to come and say, look, let's think this through. How are we going to extend out um, our leadership? And it's not just for the sake of, um, you know, to meet this particular need. It's actually to turn around and say, hey, we have a purpose. We have a commission. We have a calling that Jesus has given to us. And that is to preach God's word and to be committed to the ministry and to prayer. That is their position description that's given to them. That is their main task. So they sit down and think, okay, well, let's have this AGM, Let's work out, let's write out a position description of the kind of people we're going to look for to fill this particular role, but also to free us to do this, the things that God has called us to do. What are the position description or, or the role description that's given? Well, the people who are they looking for have to be available to serve the tables. This is a service ministry. This is meeting the practical needs. But not only that, they have to be full of spirit, good reputation. In other words, no one, everyone that they think about these people are talking positively because they see the gospel in them, they see Jesus in them, and that's why they go further and they're full of wisdom. This is wisdom from God, and that's the kind of position description that's given. Now we know that in Acts, now what's happening is the Holy Spirit is giving them discernment. There's no casting of lots; the Spirit is moving in them to give them discernment, and they mention someone. His name is Stephen. He's described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit in verse 5. Now, as Nathan's read patches of this section, we won't be going verse by verse. And the temptation is to read something like this and go, wow, that's a pretty powerful story. That's amazing. And the temptation might be, well, what is that relevance for us today? Well, if we believe God's word is relevant for all time, well, it is relevant for today too. And what is the reason why God has put that in there for us as well? My friends, this true story of Stephen's martyrdom, his death, there are a few things that we are reminded of. That Stephen's story, the story of God in this whole section is actually a reminder about the story of you and me. It's also a reminder to us that God's unstoppable plan, you cannot stop him at all. And not only that, what then should be our response? So we have first up Stephen. We're introduced to him, we're told about him and his characteristics. So he's been chosen to serve. But not only is he serving in the practical, there's a sense that he's proclaiming the good news. Is proclaiming the gospel, and there's a sense that he's actually involved in proclaiming to a particular group of people, and people are responding, and the people that are responding are religious leaders. They're turning to worship the Messiah, this Jesus that Stephen is talking about. So as the gospel is being uh, uh, is stirred in, people are responding again. The good news is expanding, but not only that. There are others who are now starting to respond a little bit less friendly, shall we say. What we need to introduce to are a group, and the name that is given the Freedmans. Now, this is not the horse racing family that we know in Melbourne Cup. Friedman's is a particular church, in that sense, what they call the synagogue. And this is a Jewish group. And within this synagogue, with this, this family that sort of looked after this particular church or Jewish synagogue, there were different groups. And particularly, there were the Syrians, Alexandrians, Sicilian and Asia. It's like a big drawer or a big group or naming of anyone who was a Greek speaking Jew. So that's what's going on here in the background. And these are individuals or these group of leaders were connected to this particular synagogue. And they, are, in some sense, like saying, they belong to this one denomination of this church. They're different groups of people, but they have one common goal now. They're opposing someone. This group was, had a bit of a chip on their shoulder because they were Greek-speaking Jews. The other Jewish guys who were the Hebrew Jews would say, oh, they're not really Jews, you know, because they speak Greek, they're not pure. And so in some sense, they went to the extreme of really having this chip on their shoulder. We will be really legalistic. We want to make sure we follow all the rules to show that we are true to this, true to their Jewish faith. So they go Armed. They go armed with their iPads and iPhones with all the arguments in front of them. They're ready to go toe-to-toe with Stephen. They confront him. He is his upstart speaking this truth about the gospel and they are being challenged about their customs and their belief systems somehow. Their response is to attack, to try to uh, make him stumble about the things that he's proclaiming. And Stephen is described as someone who is so full of the Spirit and particularly submitted to the grace of the gospel, they can't stump him. They cannot stump Stephen. Now, if you're someone who loves arguments, this is the kind of guy that you get really annoyed with. That same Spirit that has empowered Stephen to serve practically, is now empowering him to be a defender of the gospel. And this is nothing new because Jesus actually talks about it. The, the guy who wrote Acts also wrote Luke, and he talks about in Luke 21, hey listen, when you stand before people who oppose the gospel, don't worry, the Spirit, my Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will give you the words to say. Now, is their response to turn and go, oh, Stephen, you're so right, we totally got this wrong. No, their response forces them, and there's something deeper going on. They are driven by pride. They can't admit that they're wrong, to the point that they gather false witnesses. They tell these false witnesses to make up some stories. And what they want to do is to accuse Stephen of something significant, particularly in that time. That's his idea of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is much more about Stephen saying God's name in vain. No, no, this blasphemy is, to, is the idea that what they're trying to accuse Stephen falsely is to say, hey, this guy is saying that the things of God, the, the things that are so true to our Hebrew background, uh, this Jewish background that we, we, you know, we, we know who Moses is, he's the great prophet, and not only that, the, the law, and not only that, the temple. This guy, Stephen, is a guy, a follower of someone who disregarded all those things, spoke against those things, and he's doing the same thing. He's putting our traditions, our faith in question. Now, the early church in that time was still going to the temple, but they were no longer restricted by a a place. Worship now became about every day, all the time, about everything that you do. It was no longer a place or destination. It was internal. Because now the spirit of God had come. He no longer dwelled at moments, but he dwelled personally inside a person's heart. It was a person. And that's just all going on in the background. And this is what's stirring them. They bring all these false accusations. And friends, I know that when I read this story, I want to be Stephen. I want to be the hero. But at the end of the day, when we really kind of unpack this, I think I sometimes wonder if we more like the opposition. Friends, when our friends who describe us who don't know Jesus, do they describe us in such a way? Oh, yeah, so-and-so is of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. They're full of grace and power. When they describe us, do they go, oh, that's who they are all? Is there a sense that Christians are prideful? Christians love to win the argument at any cost. We find it hard to say that we're wrong. Friends, pride is an interesting thing. It's a very deceitful sin. Pride does it, it blinds us. And the gospel says, and God says, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this is what God is doing and has always done throughout history. And sometimes even this group of people that are finding their hope and their trust in the traditions and rituals, do we ourselves also do the same based on our traditions and rituals that we have in our Christian faith? Like these people of old, are we finding our hope in a particular place, like this building? Do we in our own selves struggle with pride? Do we snicker when we hear of churches or movements that are growing and expanding? Do we response in a way of saying, oh, I'm not really sure about their theology. I'm going to check them out. I'm going to try to see if I can write down a three-point statement of how wrong they are. And in our day and age of emails, Facebook, blogs, YouTube videos, I'm not too concerned about friends who don't know Jesus interacting with Christians and there's sort of a debate going on and hopefully it's helpful what concerns me is when I see Christians who both say they believe in the same gospel going toe-to-toe in a very arrogant and prideful way. And I sometimes sit there in my very super spiritual sense and disapprove at the same time, and I think I'm caught in the same pride myself. Like I say, pride is a dangerous thing. It always sits at the doorstep of everyone. Friends, the idea of this story is to actually make us Not only just recognize that, yes, we want to be like Stephen, but sometimes we're more prone to be like those religious leaders and we need to question and we need to turn around and go, God, please have grace upon me. Fill me with full of grace and power through your Spirit. But maybe this morning some of us are struggling with this idea of pride that our whole focus often is to win the arguments and disagreement and we will do whatever we can to get our point across. What does this pride drive these men, these leaders? It drives them to chase after Stephen to the point to eventually physically kill him. Friends, pride is dangerous. But just as this story is a little bit about us and us and our response and the way that pride works... This story also points to a greater story and the story that God and his unstoppable plan, despite of prideful people. Through this voice of Stephen, a man full of grace and power through his spirit, through the spirit, like a prophet of the Old Testament, that's the language that says that he looked like an angel, is to give this picture. Here is a man prophetically about to proclaim the truth to a bunch of people who are blinded. These are people who knew their Bible, if you want to use our daily language. They understand what Stephen's about to raise. They know the stories that he's about to proclaim. And he unpacks from us for chapter 7 onwards, this history, a mini Bible lesson to this group of people. And that is probably the most mind-blowing thing because it would be like me when I go to Bible college and sitting down in front of my Old Testament lecturers and having a meeting with them and saying, I want to tell you about the Old Testament. It's the most ridiculous thing for them to hear from me, a student. In this moment you have Stephen about to proclaim a story that in many ways is saying you guys have missed it. This is what pride does. It blinds us. We may know the Bible verses, we may go to church every day, we may miss the whole point of the gospel of grace. And these religious leaders are given a mini Bible lesson. And as he unpacks, he goes deeper and showing God's unstoppable plan through it all. There's a sense that Stephen was a man of humility and grace. And he speaks prophetically and he addresses them at the start by calling them brothers and fathers. This term is like an Old Testament term to say, hey, I'm one of you. This is our heritage. This is important to us, what I'm about to talk to you about. And he unpacks, starting from Abraham, and goes all the way to Jesus to talk about God's unstoppable plan to constantly and pursue rebellious people and ultimately to provide a sacrifice in Jesus. And you scan through this whole section and I encourage you later today, spend some time reading Stephen's speech and you will see one of the biggest things that constantly is reminded over and over again. And God led Abraham. God is the one who delivered them from slavery. God is the one who places Joseph in that time, in that moment, in that land. God is the one who places Moses to be born and to be in the court of the king. God is the one who, uh, who commissions uh, Moses to deal, be the deliverer of the people of Israel. This is the same Moses, even at that time, they, were re- he, they rejected him. But not only that, through Moses, God would speak prophetically. In verse 37, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. God is the one who would send Moses and they would eventually get to the promised land. God, Stephen, saying, hey, God is the one who's given us this land as well. But then Stephen reminds them what was going on in the heart and story of Israel. That their fathers rejected God and his loving rule. And rather they would worship the idols of their old days, particularly the ones that they worshipped in Israel, uh, in Egypt. And their hearts, and God gives them over and says, fine, you go worship those idols, see how that goes for you. But yet God, in his grace, still chooses to work in that rebellious group of people. And he raises up leaders like Joshua who go and possess the land. God is the one who does that. If you read the story of how they possess the land, it is the most amazing story of how God uses Joshua to do that. Then God raises up a king, King David, God is the one who places him exactly where he is. God is the one who shows favor to David. And King David's response he is to build a physical dwelling place for God because until then, God was not in a physical place. He was in a tent. That's, it's a symbol of he was always on the move. You can't just place God in one ground, one place. David's son Solomon builds the temple. See, what Stephen's doing, very skillfully, empowered by the Spirit, he's both facing those false accusations. They're saying, well, here's Stephen. He's actually talking about this Messiah that he follows, talked about the temple being uh, rebuilt. This is the guy who doesn't actually appreciate the law and the commands that we follow. This is the guy who's speaking against these things that we've so grown up and so ingrained in us. So what is doing is he's, he's presenting to them, hey, look, I have great value in this. But not only that, he's, I think, also driving a point, guys, you've missed it. You've missed what the Bible story is about. And not only that, he's saying to them, hey, you find your security in this temple that you go to, but you've forgotten who God is. He shows the reality of Moses and as a leader. And, but not only that, he says, hey, the whole point of Moses, all of this, and to the point that we are today, this was God's purpose and plan to bring a greater Moses, a greater prophets." But you wanted to box God in. You ran into other gods. And then he reminds them, as you run to this temple, you can't worship God that way. He says in verse 48, The God of the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. And what he's quoting is an Old Testament prophet by the name of Isaiah. What he's saying always, constantly, is saying, Hey guys, you can't, you've missed it, you've missed God's salvation plan. Not only that, you can't put God and place him in a little box, in a little temple, in a building. He's everywhere. You cannot stop the plans of God, just as our fathers did. Despite of our fathers, despite of our, their adult, idolatrous hearts, God continues to work and he's reminding them, hey, you cannot box God, you can't demand what God wants. But despite all of that, God's plan has always been what we are up to today. So he lays down to them this big, strong Jewish history lesson, but not only that, a true story, a story they should already know. To a bunch of prideful religious people. And he says these cutting words in verse 31. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and ears. That language is powerful language for someone who does know the Bible. There will be someone coming up to me and saying, Shabu, I know that you're a Christian, but I think I'm going to call you today a non-Christian. There's a part of me that would be like, what are you talking about? Don't you know who I am? I've been going to church for 20 years. I know all the memory verses. I am involved in church. I'm involved in the leadership team. Don't you know who my parents are and the heritage that I have? Don't you know I went to a Christian school? I'm involved in all these ministries. Stephen reminds them, "You are a group of prideful religious leaders," and he is saying to them, "You are no better than your fathers of old, who were stiff-necked to God," and ultimately he's saying, "You're no better than those people who don't know who God is." Those non Jews. It's a slap in the face. And his remark and question to them is why do you resist the Holy Spirit? Why are you resisting him? And this is shown by the way your response has been to this Messiah that I'm talking about, this Jesus I am talking about. He says, You grabbed him just as you killed the prophets of old. You grabbed him, you killed him, you betrayed him, you turned him over. You think that you can actually receive the law, but yet you don't keep it. Can you imagine the tension in that room? (laughs) The tension as they're listening to this man rebuke them. Who does this man think he is? How dare he say what he's saying? What Stephen's doing is speaking to their prideful heart. He's saying you've received the law, you know all the dots, you know all the commandments, but you've missed it. You've missed it. You hide behind your religious titles, you hide behind your temple, but in your heart you are cold. You are saying no to God, you're resisting His Spirit. You think by keeping to the law and maybe even going to church at synagogue, somehow that will save you. No, it won't. And not only that, you do not and cannot put God in a little box. He's not stationary. He's always on the move. He's always been on the move. Because this is the story of a greater story. That is the God who is the missionary God who is always and continuously chasing after stiff-necked and rebellious people. And he says to them, you cannot stop God in this plan. Friends, ultimately the gospel is God. God is the good news. The Bible story is for us to apply, but the story of the Bible is not about you or me. It's about God and his loving plan for a lost people. And we have an option. We can either respond like Stephen, repentance and respond in grace, or we can be like the religious leaders. And in a few moments you see the response of the religious leaders. What do they do? Is their heart to respond and say, Stephen, you're right, no. They're so enraged and so angry that their pride has blinded them, that someone has proven them wrong, that they snarl their teeth. It is a symbol of anger, and they want to rush him and grab him. And in that moment, in that moment where Stephen should go, oh, okay, I'm out of here, see you later, God gives him a grand vision, verse 56. He sees the heavens opened up. He sees the Son of Man, that's Jesus, on the right hand of God. What an amazing picture when you have all these snarling teeth facing you. In that moment, Stephen is being reminded, I think, and to us, despite of the opposition in front of us, Jesus still reigns. Jesus is still in control. Rather than this point of even drowning out the snarling teeth, what it does, it enrages them further to the point that they run after him. They're the language that they all go in one unison and they're grabbing him and they start pushing him out of the city. And they are about to stone this man. And stoning, I wonder if they're thinking they're going to stop this finally. But the gospel cannot be stopped. Because right there, you have this moment that's shown that is a wonderful picture of God's grace to a bunch of rebellious men who are about to kill somebody for speaking the truth of the gospel. In that moment, God shows grace. Stephen is being stoned and he cries out. It's a picture of submission. He goes to his knees, he drops down, he cries out and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. These are famous last words. These are echoes of the words of his Savior who also hung up on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And here you have this wonderful picture of grace shown. Because Stephen knew this grace that was shown to him, he was filled with the spirit and wisdom, and in light of that, he lived his life in such a way to the point that he was willing to be killed for his faith. And God showed him a grand view to say, "Hey, Stephen, I am still in control." But he sees Jesus, the risen King, and Stephen dies. No, the language he's used, he uses—he falls asleep. Friends, what happens after you fall asleep? For some of us, hopefully. You wake up. It's a wonderful picture to show to all of us, even to the author at the time, who's writing to a guy called Theophilus to say, hey, listen, the last breath may be here on this side of heaven, but on the other side, when you wake up, you'll be with your savior, the king who reigns and rules. And I love this story because the way that the author writes it, it's like a directive. You're watching this in a movie. You know, Stephen's getting stoned, and what happens? They grab the clothes, they bring it to Someone. Someone who become a prominent hero of the story in Acts, and even in that moment, what you're seeing is God's grace at work, because amongst them stands one of the most stiff-necked, rebellious leaders of the time, who is responsible for the martyr of this man that God would change, that God would encounter with the power of the gospel. And his life would never be the same again. Friends, this means for us this morning, we are to think to ourselves, where do I fit in this story? Who am I in this story? Because through this story, we're reminded that like the story of Stephen, we too are like and at times like the religious leaders who are arrogant. We ourselves find ourselves prideful We are tempted to box God in a particular place. We are reminded that this morning, God's plan and salvation cannot be stopped. God will always achieve his goal. And ultimately, we are asked now to respond. The response is, do we respond in a way to live a life that is of good repute, full of the spirit, wisdom of grace and power? Not just on Sundays. Not just on small group time. Monday to Saturday. Because as God sends us out as a witness, that's what people should see in our life. So, in light of that, some things for you to consider. When you think about this story, the first question I always ask is, "What do you respond to the gospel of grace?" Sam reminded us this morning to, in the busyness of a week, that we stop and think about the gospel. And if you do think about the gospel, does the gospel lead you to arrogance and pride? Or does it lead you to thankfulness? If it leads us to pride, we need to rethink the gospel again. If it leads us to thankfulness, it leads us to a better witness. Secondly, when you think about pride, when you think about interacting with others you may disagree with, do you always love to win an argument? Do you always want to be the last word? Do you find it hard to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. You're right. Friends, ask God to help you to be full of grace. Help ask His Spirit to empower you. And finally, the question we need to ask as well. How are you and I, and maybe even this church, resisting God and His Spirit? How are we resisting him? In the context of this passage is the lordship of Jesus, his rule, his reign. Are you resisting his own uh, spirit in the way that he wants to rule and reign in your own life? Are you resisting in the way that God is maybe even calling you to mission, both locally or overseas? Are we resisting as a church? Are we hanging on to traditions and heritage? Maybe you're hanging on to this location? Maybe we're leading to pride. Friends, let's be a church that carefully understands the gospel. But let's not be like the people of old, who through their pride and stubbornness resisted the Spirit of God. The church's call and prayer is this, that our heart is to be a church that constantly submits to God's will, submits to His Spirit's will, not just to us individually, but as a community. May we grow to be a community full of the Spirit, full of grace and truth. Let me pray as the music team comes up.